From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. Trying to figure out a fitness plan can be challenging due to the numerous recommendations that are out there. Over the years, researchers have modified their recommendations as the effects of physical activity have been studied. What we do know is that participating in some type of physical activity is beneficial as it reduces the risk of chronic diseases. As advancements in technology have increased the use of wearable devices, it has helped researchers get a more realistic view of an individual's true activity. On this week's episode, we talk with Dr. Ayman Lee regarding her work around physical activity and overall health. She is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a professor of epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Her primary area of interest is in the role of physical activity in preventing chronic diseases and enhancing longevity. Dr. Lee has served on national and international expert panels developing physical activity guidelines, including the 2008 U.S. Physical Activity Guidelines, the 2010 WHO Global Recommendations on Physical Activity for Health, and the 2013 AHA ACC Guideline on Lifestyle Management to Reduce Cardiovascular Risk. Hello, Dr. Lee. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, We're excited to talk to you today about physical activity and overall health. Um, So we wanted to start by asking, can you tell us the story behind how you got into this work? So I wish I could tell you that, you know, I had all my life wanted to study physical activity, but I actually fell into this field by accident. I was born in Malaysia. I came over here to do a master's in public health, and then I was interested to do more research at that point. But one of my professors said, you better go and do a research stint to see that you really like it. So I went out to Stanford University to work with a professor of epidemiology. And when I was there, I met a kindly old gentleman whom I did not know. I knew nothing about the field of physical activity. As it turned out, he was one of the fathers of physical activity epidemiology. And all I saw was this kindly gentleman who you know, would offer desserts and treats and invite me to his meetings. And that was how I met Professor Ralph Paffenbarger. And I got involved in physical activity research through no design of my own, but serendipity. Over the years, there have been many different recommendations for physical activity and what is needed. Can you give us a bit of a historical overview of the last 10 to 20 years or so? Physical activity recommendations have actually changed quite a bit over the last, I'm going to say, oh, probably 30, 40 years. And some people might say, oh, you know, you guys don't know what you're doing. But I think it's reasonable for guidelines to change over the years because obviously the evidence base changes over the years. So as an example, let's look at blood pressure. Previously, we used to say, you know, control your blood pressure to 180 systolic. Then it went to 140 systolic. And now we think 120 systolic. It's not that we were wrong at the past, but it's just that evidence keeps accumulating. So specifically with regard to physical activity, we used to say no pain, no gain, meaning, you know, you had to do things like run, really work out. 
to be able to get any health benefits. Now, the reason this came about is because around the 1970s, this is when the first set of guidelines came out from organizations such as the American College of Sports Medicine, the American Heart Association. The research that was done at that time was primarily by exercise physiologists, and they were interested in the question, what would make someone more fit from a cardiorespiratory perspective? So these were professors of exercise physiology, and they would do experiments. The experiments we conducted on the most convenient subjects, and the most convenient subjects turned out to be their graduate students. And their graduate students in the 1970s tended to be mainly young men. So young men are already pretty fit. If you want to get them more fit, you actually need them to work them quite hard. So that was why the recommendations from the 1970s onwards for the next perhaps 20 years would be you needed to exercise vigorously, such as running, playing tennis, swimming laps, for at least 20 minutes, three times a week, continuously. So it meant if you started on a run and five minutes into the run, your shoelace came undone, your choice would be continue running and trip or not count that and start again. But then from that period on, there were these large-scale epidemiologic studies that looked at physical activity in groups of regular people, say the regular population, things that they did, and tracked health outcomes in these individuals, including studies from Professor Ralph Paffenbarger. And they showed that even moderate-intensity physical activity, such as brisk walking, was beneficial for health. So in 1995, there was a market change in recommendations. And the recommendations now, instead of the no pain, no gain paradigm set, we need to accumulate 30 minutes of mod at least moderate intensity physical activity most days of the week. And by most days, we meant five days of the week. So you were allowed to do things like brisk walking for 30 minutes, say on your lunch break for five days a week. So this continued until our most recent set of recommendations in 2008, which now says 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity, such as brisk walking, or 75 minutes a week of vigorous intensity physical activity, such as running, or some combination of the two that expense equivalent energy expenditure. So what was the difference with the 1995 recommendation? So the difference was, you know, 30 times 5 is very prescriptive. And we realized that the data didn't necessarily say 30 times 5. It was the cumulative energy expenditure that was important. Second, at the time the 1995 recommendations were released, it wasn't that we didn't think vigorous intensity physical activity was helpful. It's that relatively few people do it. Most people do nothing. And so if you do nothing to try and get you to do something it's much more feasible to ask you to do something like walking. So the emphasis was on moderate intensity physical activity, whereas our intent was, you know, if you're doing vigorous intensity exercise, keep doing it. If you're doing nothing, try to do moderate intensity physical activity. But I think we were concentrating so much on the people that did nothing that we failed to place sufficient emphasis on the people who did something. So there were all these runners, avid exercisers who said, what do you mean? Do you mean now that 
you know, my exercise has been useless. So the 2008 guidelines tried to accommodate everybody. You know, do what you like doing because you'd be more likely to stick with it. And you can certainly do combinations of the two. So for many people, they commute to work or their errands by walking or bicycling leisurely. That's moderate intensity. And you might do your exercise. You play tennis or your swim laps. So you can combine these two kinds of activity to a total that's sufficient to give you health benefits. What is the difference between moderate and vigorous activity? So moderate and vigorous intensity physical activity refer to how hard you have to work. And there is a technical definition related to how hard your body has to work. But for most of the public, I think, you know, a rule of thumb is what we call the SING test. So what is the SING test? The SING test is when you're doing that activity, you should be able to continue a conversation, but you should not be able to sing if you are working at a moderate intensity level. If you are doing something, you can continue a conversation and you're singing the latest Beyonce song cheerfully. You are not exercising moderately. That's light intensity. If you are exercising and you can neither converse nor sing, you're exercising vigorously. So that's sort of a good rule of thumb that we give the lay public. Most of the early work on physical activity focused on the development of chronic diseases, diseases such as heart disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, etc., because these were the important diseases in the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s. Now, with the fortune of people being able to live longer, Cognitive decline is a major problem for caregivers as well as from an economic perspective. And one of the interesting fields of research nowadays is looking at whether physical activity can improve or maintain cognitive function and slow down cognitive decline. And there have been some interesting work done recently that suggests that this is the case, possibly by increasing blood flow to the brain, possibly by changing function of some areas of the brain that are involved in uh, cognitive function. So again, I think over the next few years, mental function will be an area for which you'll see more results coming out. There also has been some studies looking at mental illness. So mild, moderate depression. We know that these can be treated with drugs, but drugs are not always well tolerated and drugs don't always work for depression. So there have been some studies looking at physical activity and how it can affect mild to moderate depression. And the studies do indicate that physical activity at the levels that is recommended can reduce the risk of mild to moderate depression in individuals. Um, with the guidelines you talked about earlier around physical activity, what if someone does less than that? Do they benefit? That's a great question. So what the guidelines have proposed, 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity, such as brisk walking, or 75 minutes of vigorous intensity physical activity, such as jogging or some combination. We clearly know that that level of physical activity is beneficial for health. Uh, it reduces the risk of many chronic diseases, it enhances function, and there's some indication that it may improve cognitive function. Interestingly, in the past, I would say two to three years, there have been several meta-analyses that have been done. And meta-analyses are basically 
combinations of single studies. So pooling together a large evidence base to get the most reliable data. There have been several meta-analyses that have been conducted specifically looking at premature mortality and showing what I think is great news, that at the level that's recommended, your risk of dying early is reduced. But what's very interesting is that if you don't reach that level, if you do something, even half of what's recommended, you already start to see a benefit. So doing a little is better than doing nothing. If you do what's recommended, you get additional benefit. And if you do more than that, you will continue to get additional benefit, but at smaller increments. So meaning the biggest bang for your buck is going from nothing to doing something. And then at some point, the benefit tapers off. So we saw that, for example, if you do 10 times what's recommended, you probably get equivalent benefit for prolonging life as if you do perhaps three to five times what's recommended. So what does it mean? The good news is that, you know, you don't have to do a lot. You can do less than what's recommended. What about the people who do a lot? Well, at 10 times what's recommended, we don't see any adverse harm. I'm going to repeat that. At 10 times what's recommended, we don't see any adverse effects, meaning we don't see that mortality rate is increased. Now, we did not look at musculoskeletal injuries, fractures, etc., which probably occur at a higher rate with more physical activity. And I also think that people who do these really high levels of physical activity, they're not doing it for health. I mean, of course, health factors into it, but they're doing it more to satisfy what they want to do, perhaps some challenge that you give yourself. Are you capable of doing this level of activity? So for them, it's a quality of life issue. You know, they want to do it. You can't say do less than that. They'd probably not be satisfied with doing less than that. So for the people who want to do lots of physical activity and perhaps, you know, have more musculoskeletal injuries, they weigh the benefits for their individual goals versus what potentially might happen to the musculoskeletal system. Obviously, they will have health benefits. For the people at the other end, you know, what I say is just start with a little bit. If you do nothing, how about walking five minutes a day? Surely most people can walk five minutes a day. When you walk five minutes a day, you actually can improve your respiratory fitness a little bit more, meaning you're capable of doing a little bit more. Then when you're comfortable with that, you could perhaps do 10 minutes and then after that, 15 minutes, because from doing nothing to doing half an hour, that's a lot. But just try five minutes. And I wanted to start with a personal story also. Before I met Professor Ralph Paffenbarger, I never did anything. Um, I grew up in the tropics where it's really hot and humid. You sweat waiting to cross the street. So nobody exercises. And then when I met Professor Ralph Paffenbarger and I got involved in his research, I still did no exercise then I would go with him to conferences and all his, you know, triathlete, marathon buddies would talk to him and ask him about his last race. And he'd say, oh, this is my graduate student. And they'd look at me and they'd say, so what do you do? And after a few instances of uh, nothing, I decided I better start exercising. And now I do walk to do my errands, I bicycle. My regular regimen of exercise is actually running. I run, I try to run about five days a week. I'm slow, but you know, I run. I'm injury free so far. That's good. And do I like it? No, I'm not sure I always like doing it. I'm always happy when I'm done and it gives legitimacy to my research.
It has been said that sitting can be just as dangerous as smoking. Is that true? And if so, why? So this is an interesting field of research that has gained a lot of prominence over the last five years. And as you said, you see many headlines that say things like sitting is the new smoking. So sitting or sedentary behavior is actually not the opposite of physical activity. Think about it this way. Many of us, well, all of us around this table, sit most of the time for our jobs. So we are highly sedentary. But we could also, after work, go for an hour run every day. So we are both physically active as well as sedentary. So they're not flip sides of the coin. They're behaviors that can coexist, particularly in people with desk jobs. So some research, in fact, a large body of research has suggested that a large amount of sedentary behavior adversely affects biomarkers. And biomarkers are markers of disease. So things like uh, glucose levels, insulin levels, lipid levels. So these studies suggest that people who sit a lot may have inefficient glucose processing systems. But the Data from such studies tend to be limited because many of these studies are cross-sectional. What do I mean by cross-sectional? I mean that you perhaps ask people or get people to wear devices to see how sedentary they are, and then you take their blood and check for biomarkers at the same time. Now, if you do it at the same time, you can't differentiate the temporality of the evidence. It could be that indeed you're very sedentary, therefore your markers are bad. Or it could also be your markers are good, it reflects good health in you, and therefore you are capable of exercising. So a better study design would be to look at things longitudinally. You look at their sedentary behavior, follow them up over time, and see what happens over the long run. And with the wearables that I'm talking about, we should be able to find that out. So more definitive data are coming out probably in the next few years. We do have some self-reported data that suggests, not definitive, that suggests that sitting more is not helpful for you, but it may be offset by high levels of physical activity. So if you're someone who is active for perhaps an hour a day, this is based on self-reported activity, it appears that sitting for a long time doesn't adversely affect your longevity. Now, why is that important? That's important because I think, you know, some of us, don't choose our sitting. What do I mean? Um, I obviously, um, you know, do research. Am I going to say, no, I'm not going to do research. I'm going to be a construction worker now so that I can be physically active. I mean, that's just not reasonable. On the other hand, there are many people who are socioeconomically disadvantaged. They, you know, might have to travel long distances for work. You know, they take a bus, they ride a train. And so it's not their choice. They have to do it for their job. So the sitting a lot, it's by necessity. But they might be able to offset some of it by in the time that they're able, do some physical activity. So I think the field of sedentary behavior and health is very interesting and we should be able to see more definitive data coming up in the next few years. What research are you specifically working on now? So one of the interesting directions of physical activity research nowadays is, well, 
a lot of you out there have wearables, you know, devices that can track physical activity. Wearables are now more commonly used and they've become sufficiently cheap that a lot of people use them. This wasn't always the case. So when we started doing physical activity research previously, you know, like Professor Ralph Paffenbarger in the 60s, the 70s, wearables didn't exist. And the most efficient way to do research on physical activity was actually to administer questionnaires. So several questionnaires I use, many of them actually derive from Professor Paffenbarger's first questionnaire. A questionnaire that has been tested and found to be reliable and valid. So the questionnaire asks people about how many city blocks they walk, how many stairs they climb, the types of activities that they've done in the previous week, the frequency and the duration. So we know that self-report is not always accurate. So if you're someone who has an exercise regimen, you go out and you run three days a week, you probably report it accurately. But if most of your activity comes from going grocery shopping, going to the post office, picking up your dry cleaning, you can't report it that accurately. So nowadays, there are starting to be studies, including a study that I direct, that makes use of wearables, research-grade wearables. So the public would think of something like Fitbit or Jawbone or Nike Fuel Band. Inside each of this is a device called an accelerometer, which measures acceleration. So your movements in three planes, up and down, side to side, front to back. So devices can track movement accurately. And currently, I have a study where we've gotten a group of older women to wear these devices for seven days. So we are able to accurately record their physical activity and we're going to relate that to chronic disease outcomes, quality of life, weight gain, etc. from the time they wore the device to the future. And what's great about these devices too is that they can pick up patterns of activity. So we can see whether you do your activity in spurts or are you someone who does your activity in long bouts? And in fact, a recent study that I worked on with some colleagues in England looked at what we call the weekend warrior pattern. So many people who work don't have time to exercise during the week. What they do is during the weekends, they go out for one or two long exercise sessions. It might be a long hike, a long bike ride. And interestingly, in this new piece of research, we found that weekend warriors actually benefit as much as people who are regularly active. Now, I would still say my, that my preference would be if you can make it, be regularly active. Why? One, it inculcates a regular habit. And secondly, you're less likely to suffer from musculoskeletal strains if you do it regularly versus a long bout only once or twice a week. We've heard you've been working with an international group of collaborators. Can you tell us a bit more about the study that you're working on? I've been working with a great group of international colleagues for many years now, but around about 2011, we came up with this idea that most of the world, not just the US, is physically inactive. And people pay attention to physical activity perhaps once every four years when the Olympic Games are conducted, then everybody watches television and you know is interested in sports. And we thought maybe if around the time of the Olympic Games, we were to 
publish a series of papers related to physical activity that might catch people's attention and get them to pay attention to it at least for a bit. So in partnership with The Lancet, which is a British general medical journal, which has a high impact factor and large readership, we launched the Lancet Physical Activity Series, where we looked at research on physical activity and health throughout the world. So addressing topics like how active, or more relevantly, how inactive is the population in the world. If we were to move every inactive person in the world to becoming active, meaning meeting the physical activity recommendations. What does it do to health? And interestingly, we found that we could avert about 5 million deaths each year, about the same number of deaths that is caused by smoking. So other topics that we addressed included, you know, what are the correlates of physical activity? What makes people active? What makes people inactive? What are some of the characteristics associated with being active or inactive? Um, we also had a paper that was a call to action to governments because it's not just willpower. We know that the environment can shape how active or inactive people are. Policies, for example, drawing from the tobacco analogy, you know, rules and regulations around where you can smoke and where you can't smoke were very helpful in terms of bringing down smoking rates. So can we use the same sort of peril to promote physical activity? That was in 2012. In 2016, we looked at several other topics, including the economic cost of physical inactivity throughout the world. The topic that we addressed earlier, if you are someone who has to sit a lot, can physical activity counteract some of the harm? So we hope to continue to work collaboratively with these researchers in many countries throughout the world because physical inactivity is not just a U.S. problem. It's not just a problem of high-income countries. It's a problem of low- and middle-income countries as well, particularly so since some of these low- and middle-income countries, in fact, many of them, are now becoming industrialized. Rates of chronic disease such as heart disease and cancer, are climbing very rapidly in, this, in these countries. And in fact, the numbers of these diseases now in people in middle and low-income countries outnumber those in high-income countries. And to people in low-income countries, you know, previously you had to work so hard, now you can own a motorbike. You know, that's considered socially desirable. But it's not from an activity perspective. How can we address these questions? So I hope to continue working with this international group for a while. Thank you again for joining us on the show, Dr. Lee. It's been my pleasure. And think about it, if I, who did nothing, you know, for the first couple of decades of my life, could become physically active and am now continuing to be active several decades later, you can do it too. Next time on Think Research, we've developed a modular system where we can take components from that cancer vaccine, components from the MBL pathogen capture, we can clean those up, or we could even capture from an infected animal and make a vaccine which can protect other animals. We hear from Dr. Michael Super about engineering protein mutations for the future of eradicating disease. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Join us the first Wednesday of each month for a new episode. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. <laughs>